Welcome back to the Next Frontier podcast. Ori Sar and I met about three years ago when he was the deputy head of innovation for the Israeli Air Force. Ori has amassed an exceptional amount of experience working directly with innovation resources, open innovation, um, and really transforming organizations from the inside with new technologies, but not technologies, bringing the mindset, bringing the human capital and bringing the innovation resources to bring new applications of technologies into extremely complex, big bureaucratic organizations. Um, he then went on after he was the deputy head of innovation for the Air Force in Israel uh, to co-found the IDF's innovation branch within the Israeli Defense Forces planning directorate. So he built up a new innovation ecosystem for process innovation, for planning and uh, innovation for the Israeli Defense Forces. He's an amazing resource for understanding how innovation works and happens within large bureaucratic organizations. If you listened, and if you haven't listened to it, I highly recommend going back and taking a listen to the episode, to the episode that I recorded with Brian B. Mao of the United States Air Force's AFWorks. Um, this, this conversation will follow a very similar train of thought of trying to dissect and understand how innovation, particularly defense innovation and innovation resources and kind of the infrastructure that enables innovation to happen is instrumental to, to the defense innovation ecosystem and what lessons can entrepreneurs, companies large and small, and even individuals in your, in your personal life learn from the defense innovation ecosystem and some of the familiarity um, and, and intimacy that Ori has had with innovation resources as applied to the defense ecosystem. Ori, it's a pleasure to have you on today. I like to start all my conversations, and I'll probably change this up in, in the future, but I like to start all my conversations by asking my guests to tell me who are they in 2021, and not to tell me, to really define for the audience um, who are they right now at this moment in time, what are you passionate about, excited on, and how do you describe um, who you are for, for the world to kind of meet you and and meet you on your terms in the way that you want yourself to be introduced in this context. Thank you very much, Max. It's uh, it's great having you. It's, it's great being here. Um, in 2021, I'd say I'm a, I'm a free spirit. Uh, I'm kind of joking, but I, I left the military a few months ago, and I went for my own personal. Uh, research journey of who I am, uh, what would I like to do, um, what they want, what they feel like, what, I, what kind of value they want to bring to the world. Um, and going through that process while the, the world is going through a pandemic, and uh, you probably heard of the recent event in Israel uh, with the uh, Hamas conflict, so we kind of got into a world. It's a very interesting process of, of going into yourself. Um, in terms of like professionally, uh, I feel like um, I want to uh, help people to uh, take all of those different technology trends 
that are growing bigger and quicker and accelerating uh, on their own pace around the world and and to bring it over to to their own place so whether it's their company uh, if they're a startup or it's a huge large-scale kind of organization it can be private or uh, or government and and get those trends uh, applicated and within uh, their day-to-day processes. So they will be able to ride on the tsunami that is starting these days and, and not be crushed by it because um, it doesn't wait to anyone. To kick off the conversation, with all that said, with, with, from what I understand, your, your goal is to package the lessons you've learned from defense innovation and your work there and bring it into other ecosystems to help individual small businesses, companies, uh, large companies, bring internal innovation and other forms of innovation into, into their organizations so that they can iterate faster, innovate faster, uh, innovate better. Um, similar to the, to the goals and scope of this podcast, which I think is why you and I have established such an interesting um, and unique friendship over the past few years. The, the, the thing that strikes me about your work is that you operated in the defense ecosystem. So maybe we can start off the conversation now that you've kind of told the world who you are, uh, not the world, my small audience of, of, you know, my modest audience. Can you just define for me, what is defense innovation? Number one, but more generally, I guess, what is innovation? And then what is defense innovation to you? How do you define it? How do you think about it? So, Uh, in large scale innovation is a buzzword uh, and uh, people use it in different terms and there's all those different definitions for innovation and I think some of them uh, give like deep meaning for it and some of them can make it into like kind of a theater um, so from someone that doesn't work in that field uh, The, the gap between like just doing cool events with nice technology to actually changing uh, the way you work and the, the group you're in like the I see companies are kind of a community so the community you a part of is changing is, is very different um, I feel like uh, for me innovation in, in general not necessarily defense defense innovation is um, let's say you have a problem. And you defined that problem by uh, looking at some root causes, different like assumptions that uh, uh, on top of them, you decided how do you uh, define the problem. And, and for the definition, let's say you did it the best. You, you researched everything and, and you defined the problem perfect. Then you go on and you look for different solutions to deal with that problem. Um, let's say you did that process perfect this way you looked inside and outside you went into different industries and you found the best solution to your problem and then you stop because you have a problem you have a solution you connect them and you go over you go on with your life and uh, what happens is that those assumptions are, are starting to change because they never stop because the market is changing because the enemy is learning and um, And it goes along both on like the assumptions that on top of them you define the problem and the different kind of solutions that you have in order to deal with those problems. And I think that that process never stops because uh, the world is always changing. And uh, what happened in the last few years is that you have to do it much quicker. So in the past, I think innovation is something that um, 
every organization had in the past and, and have even today, even the most bureaucratic ones, because if you don't have it, you, you're stuck on the place. And this is kind of like a human nature that you want to move forward and, and to be better. But because you need to do it much quicker, uh, large-scale companies and organizations started to create different mechanisms in order to accelerate that process both internally and, and, and from the outside and to make it more effective so they can capitalize on these changes in, in a better way. Uh, in terms of defense, specifically defense mechanism, not only in Israel, but in general around the world, this is a huge mechanism with hundreds of thousands of people that the basis of it is very old. Like decades ago, they started and people are changing them very quickly. Um, so many, many people think that defense innovation is about bringing the best technology. And, and this is something that the military had always. Um, but I think what happens right now is that because uh, all of these new technologies becomes more and more available to the public, um, the, the private world is finding new types of application to these uh, technologies um, that surpassed many of the things that in the past those security mechanisms have been doing uh, on themselves. And in order to innovate in that field, you have to find new ways to applicate those new uh, building stones of uh, technologies and methodologies and, uh, and like, let's call it like um, kind of a culture um, that is built up around the world and uh, and to enhance it within your, uh, your organization, your community. Did you hear the story? Um, and we'll get, we'll get into drones a little bit later, but did you hear the story and I think that this goes to the second half of what you were saying about how as these technologies are becoming cheaper, more widely available to the consumer, they can more quickly get their hands into, say, the enemy. Uh, and then, you know, the IDF, the Israeli Defense Forces, or the American military, whoever, whoever, whoever from our frame of reference, the good guys are, is then need to respond more rapidly to those new threats, which requires them to innovate rather than building up new technologies. It's more of how do you more quickly react to to a changing landscape. And I think a key piece that I took away from what you were talking about was how do you quickly change your, realize your assumptions need to change, then, then work to change those assumptions, come to an agreement on what your, about what your assumptions should be, and then build new solutions off of those assumptions. Um, I thought that was a really interesting piece that I hadn't necessarily thought about, about in, what innovation is. And my engineering brain goes, hey, innovation is kind of like your ability to to how quickly can you resolve your differential equation as your boundary conditions are changing, if that makes any sense. Um, so when you're solving a differential equation, you have these different math pro these different math terms, and you can't solve it unless you have some assumptions, your boundary conditions. But once you have your boundary conditions, it becomes pretty easy to solve your differential equation. And it strikes me that, that what you're describing as innovation is how quickly can you change can you recognize that your boundary conditions have changed? Can you actually agree to what the new boundary conditions should be? And then plug those boundary conditions into your differential equation and then solve that new differential equation with said boundary conditions to go and come to a real solution. And that's just kind of a, a thread that you just put together in my brain. But one example of, of what I think you're talking about 
I listened to a a book. I think it might have been a podcast. It might have been. It might have come in a few different places. Um, but about the consumer drone market and how when when consumer drones came about, a big driver of that industry was was the DIY, the do-it-yourself drone market. I think do-it-yourself do and kind of open source projects are awesome drivers of innovation and innovation resources. They're awesome because they allow consumers to more readily, rapidly um, you know, solve their own problems with open source technologies. That's what this whole podcast has been about, the Next Frontier thesis. Um, but what that left the door open for, there was a website, diydrones.com, when DIY or maybe.org, when DIY drones came out, it was this breakthrough. Like it, it allowed so much more development in the drone market because all these consumers were putting their, their CAD files, their drawings, et cetera, online for free. Everyone was downloading them and then iterating on top of each other. But what it opened up for was for terrorist groups to start downloading these drones um, to start using those drones for terrorist attacks or to fight against the, the Marines or the army in Afghanistan and Iraq. Um, and to this day, I mean, you were telling me a little bit before about how, or actually you weren't telling me about this. It was another conversation about how during this, this latest round of, uh, of Hamas um, missile attacks, they've also been sending suicide drones to, uh, to go and, and attack targets in, in Israel. Um, but because of this DIY movement, because these innovation resources became so widely available, it also allowed the enemy to, to kind of innovate their processes and how they're, how they're going about um, new technologies. And it's always struck me how that market so rapidly changed thanks to not the technology. The technology was always there. The motors were there. The speed controllers were there. They've only gotten better over time, but to the processes innovation of we're going to open source this we're going to put it online we're going to encourage do it yourself um a do it yourself community to contribute to this source of knowledge and then kind of the opposite side of the of the defense innovation coin was now terrorist groups are able to more rapidly innovate which challenges you to more rapidly innovate to respond to that threat um so that's just a cycle that that as you were talking i'm thinking about how that plays out there's a whole like ethical and moral implication side of that of, hey, okay, we can have society innovate more rapidly, but that means that some bad guys are going to get access to this innovation too. What do we do in that situation? And it's a very complex set of thinking and the world that you're working in is very complex. So I'll hand the mic back to you and maybe you have some thoughts on that, that whole tirade. Yeah, so, so absolutely. It's not only drones, but by the way, there was uh, an... Uh, there was a, a kind of like a, a, a group of terrorists from Hamas that tried to send this, this explosive uh, drone and uh, the IDF intercepted it. So it fell and it killed both of them. Um, but beside that, they also tried to use like, uh, they tried to send like autonomous submarines uh, that they built. And they're like this low profile uh, terrorist organizations are starting to get all of these new abilities. And you have to find better ways to deal with it. And, and luckily, we're good. But no one promised that we will be uh, in the future. Because if you see the trend, you have to get the, the, the different uh, tools that you've got um, adapted to this new reality. Because in the past, you never had uh, such, a, such small groups with that kind of abilities. Um, and I felt, if, I, if I'll elaborate on the, the thing you said before about the equation, um, when I try to frame what is innovation, I said that let's say we define the problem correctly. 
and we did all the research, but you can never do all the research. Uh, and, and what's interesting about that, that I think those boundaries are, there, there are different kinds of options to define those boundaries. So there is more than one truth. Um, and in the process, I think that what's interesting to see is that if you like go uh, in terms of the timeline, things are changing, but also if you go in terms of the points of view. So if you take a problem and you put it in, in uh, you, you get it solved you get it to a group of people that usually those were the people you were going to in order to try to solve this problem. Uh, you're probably going to get a similar solution and a similar definition of the problem. But if you take the, that, that same problem and, and you give it to a group of like young people from high school or a group of makers or a group from a totally different industry and let them see that problem, they would define it in a very different way that many times would be much better than what you would like naturally go to. So you, you can see it like implemented in an organization like Google X. Uh, where they bring people with all those different backgrounds that are like not relevant for maybe to science. They can bring like marketing people. They can bring people from like the fashion industry uh, to work on problems that they would never deal with before uh, because they bring that different points of view. And if you do it systematically, uh, those different points of view are uh, moving you in different directions that the general industry usually don't do it because they don't have those uh, points of view. It's interesting too, when you look at it from a defense innovation perspective, because you have all of these very specific problems that you need to solve as a, as a military, but you also have a very large ecosystem of people who are obligated contractually or conscripted to, to, solve those problems and to give their input to solve those problems. And you can have that organization go one of two ways. You can have that organization become one that is innovative and you have sort of those frontline innovators, say the guy carrying a rifle whose M16 doesn't work in Vietnam or the, the, the aircraft technician who sees that they're just leaving lights on all night and burning a ton of money on the tarmac or the human resource professional who's actually doing the in-processing, who sees all these inefficiencies, you can create a culture where those, where those folks who are actually doing the work and have the experience might have in their brains different ways and, and um, methods that they are either solving it right now on a kind of makeshift scale or think that they can solve it if they had budget, um, um, permission, whatever the, the restraint currently is to them solving it. You have this massive, this massive people who are day to day working on these problems, who might have a lot of trapped human capital, human intelligence, uh, and are also conscripted or contractually obligated to, to serve and do things for the benefit of the organization. And so it's a very interesting um, dynamic when you combine what you were talking about with, with diversity of viewpoint and bringing different folks in to solve these complex problems. And you actually have such a huge mass of people um, who each and of themselves comes from different backgrounds and has different perspectives together in one place who are able to rapidly innovate together on that problem. But what becomes interesting is it's such a big organization. You can either have leadership and infrastructure and innovation processes and innovation infrastructure that stifles that human capital, or, or like the work that you were doing, you can have innovation infrastructure that 
draws out that human capital and empowers that human capital to better the force and innovate more effectively. There's a lot of parallels here for individuals and companies too, but in defense innovation in particular, there's this interesting phenomenon that, that we've been talking about. Yeah. So um, you were touching a bit about it, that some people say the problem in, in innovating with these organizations is, might be budget or approval or this and that. I think budget and resources are almost never the problem because um, one of the advantages that this huge mechanism has is that when they find a solution to uh, a big problem, uh, you already have huge budgets that are uh, being spent every year. And if you find a way to uh, suggest a different equation that shows those decision makers that spending the money on your solution is much better than the thing that they are spending the money on today, it's much easier to get that money uh, from when you like start to innovate outside in the private sector, when you need to find those resources uh, from somewhere that is not available and is not being spent anyway. Um, and at the same time, we spoke about point of view. You're right. We get, uh, luckily in, in Israel, luckily or not luckily, like, but we have mandatory service, which means uh, we get everyone. We get like 60% or 70% of uh, every 18 years old uh, kid in Israel. And we get them for between two to three years at least. Um, and each one of them comes with a different point of view, a different background. They go through a different process. And if we find the infrastructure that gets them to meet up with their ideas, with their problems, um, and we get them the support they need in order to get all of those different perspectives into a viable solution that they can prove, uh, it can literally change the course of how the military used to deal with it and, and does it on the day-to-day. Well, so so now, this is a good a good segue into the the meat of the conversation. Your work was really around creating the infrastructure, so innovating how the IDF or the IAF innovates to allow those individual contributors in the IDF to allow those individual specific warfighters a mechanism to get their solutions to, through the bureaucracy effectively and efficiently and then bring those solutions into actuality. So can you give us and, and just back us up, bring us to the Israeli Air Force. Where was the Israeli Air Force, say, six years ago before Ori Sar and Ori Sar's team come in to create this innovation infrastructure for those frontline innovators, that for that bottom-up innovation pathway? Where were they? So I, I was not there, so... <laughs> I cannot tell you where they were uh, before we came, but I can tell you where they were uh, after we came. Um, so the, the innovation department in the Air Force started like around two years uh, before I joined. Um, it started by an entrepreneur. His name is Omer Yuval. Uh, he, he actually came from the ground troops. Uh, and he got released out of the military. He spent a decade working with the different defense startups. And then he decided to get back to the, the IDF uh, as an Air Force officer. And after a while on the role, he, he thought that in such a huge organization, uh, we have to create a mechanism that, support, that can support uh, uh, entrepreneurs because he felt 
he goes against the walls all the time when he tried to innovate uh, within the Air Force. And he got an approval to start this department on his own without budget, without uh, soldiers. And he started to roll it from the day to day. And he brought uh, uh, different uh, soldiers of, that, that came from abroad with a unique background. Uh, and he started to build the department. And at the beginning, when we tried to tackle it, we thought about trying to change the Air Force by changing its culture. So we said, what can we do in well, order to- just to just sorry to interrupt you, but just to because I think that this is important, change it from what? So what what was it? I know you weren't there, but I'm sure that you have some some thoughts or um, you've heard rumblings about what it was before you started these initiatives. So what were you trying to solve? What needed to change? Because a lot of times when we talk about innovation, we talk about changing things. But there isn't always something that needs to change. And my understanding is that in this case, there was specifically something that needed to change. So what was that? Or what is yeah, that? So, so it actually, it still is in some, in some places in the military because uh, there isn't a one, one kind of culture for the IDF. And every unit has their own culture. And, and it's always changing and, and developing. So uh, it's not like this day it's solved and uh, like magic. But... Um, the, the, the problem we try to solve is that uh, many times in the, in the Air Force and in general in the military, um, as an entrepreneur, you have an idea, you find a problem that you face with, and you try to solve it. And then uh, you go into these like invisible walls of either bureaucracy or a commander that does not support it. It can be like security clearance issues. It can be budget. It can be that the commander does not understand why you need to work on that. And uh, like, for example, it can be a problem that you see uh, that the Air Force is facing, but it's not your unit um, responsibility. So like your commander can tell you, yo, don't work on that because it's not our responsibility. So he's not incentivized. He's not incentivized to empower you to solve the problem. Yeah, exactly, and, and and sometimes it's even incentivized on the other on the other way, like because uh, he has a ton of work on his of his own uh, and things you are you are responsible for. And if you have a passion for something that is not within your role, it might be very hard uh, to try and find the time and support in order to work on that. Uh, even though that all in all, it can provide much greater value to the Air Force than if you do what your commander wants you to do. Um, so, 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 okay. So that's number one. So kind of the le- leadership, not trying to impede innovation, but not necessarily having a, not being trained in a culture of innovation. So is that a good summary of that first, that first piece? Yeah. So this one thing, the other thing is the Air Force and again, militaries in general are very hierarchical, hierarchical organizations. And the problem is this works great on the battlefield but not in the headquarters because uh, the headquarters is not hierarchical. Even though it tries to act that way, um, it's very parallel. So in order to get something through, you have to collaborate with all those different officers and soldiers in the different departments. Uh, and when it comes down to how they plan the work plan, each one of these commanders of the departments runs his own work plan but they are all tie, tied up to each other. So if, he, if this one changes something, it uh, affects all the other uh, uh, departments in the process, and they're not necessarily 
uh, correlated. So is that what, is that what you meant when you said bureaucracy? Hmm? Is that what you mean by bureaucracy? Because that was the next so, thing I wanted to ask you about. So it's to clarify. not necessarily yeah. bureaucracy, like um, how they run how they run the work plan of the Air Force. So it can comes out in terms of bureaucracy. So this head of departments he decided this procedure has to work the way he decided, and all the different uh, people in the chain have to comply with it. And the end result is that it's very not effective. Uh, or, or the uh, squadron in the field won't get what they need to get, or it will take much longer time and cost much more money than it was intended in the first place. But on the other side, you can be the commander of that department decided, this is the goal, we need to get this project done, and he tells his people, do it, but you have to get the people in the department parlor to it to want to help you to do it, Otherwise, it won't be done, even though your commander said so, and as senior as he will be. Um, so it's like it's it's the headquarters seem to be hierarchical, but they're a matriculation, like they're more matriculated. Uh, you have all of these different uh, uh, professionals that has their own area of uh, responsibility and they're all tied up to each other and they cannot really command each other to do what they, you would like them to do. So you have to find a way how to motivate them to do whatever uh, you think is good for the Air Force because they want to and they feel like it's uh, it's what you need to do. So it's kind of creating a culture of, of how do you move those places from the inside. Uh, I like to call it like uh, I have a fun story about it. Um, we had an accelerator program. Um, we ran it for a few years. And at the first time we did it, uh, it was free soldiers from the department that decided um, that they want to do an accelerator program because uh, I, I told you earlier that we, we started with uh, trying to change the culture, but it brought a lot of antagonism because it looked like we're just talking to the people that weren't working with us. Uh, so they thought that if we'll create a mechanism that is very hands-on, where we take a problem and at the end of it, we bring a solution with an MVP that proves that solution is, is worthwhile and we manage to get it into the workplace of the Air Force, it will build the trust with the rest of the people in the, in the Air Force. So when they started, it was just free duty soldiers without a budget, like mandatory service soldiers that decided to start it. So they uh, sent out an email for like a few uh, dozens of thousands of people in the Air Force looking for entrepreneurs. Uh, and some of them signed up. They did an uh, interviewing process. They managed to get a group of 40 people that agreed to work like in the evenings in order to solve the different problems. Then they went and they looked out for uh, different solutions. Uh, a different, not, not different solutions, looked for different interesting problems that the accelerator can tackle. So uh, they brought some of them from these people that uh, wanted to participate, some of them from interviews uh, with, uh, with commanders, and they started the process. Uh, the day, like a, a week before they started, they went to the commander to my, of my department and told them, we're starting an accelerator program next week. We have 40 people willing to work. Do you want to open? Open. It's like, oh, okay. And he came to open the, the program. And it went out for three months. Again, no budget, 
we all like all of the uh, lecturers and the places and and the support we got is like smile and uniforms uh, <laughs> uh, we gather people to help us and at the end of it they brought like four solutions for uh, like like they brought seven solutions for seven problems out of the ten we started with uh, but at uh, at the end of the of the program, we had a, a demo day with the deputy commander of the Air Force, and he proved four projects, and like maybe 1.5 of them succeeded, and it was partially. And the reason is uh, because we didn't chose the problems that those heads of departments really wanted to, to solve. So even when the deputy commander of the Air Force gave them an order to do so, it kind of fell off in the, in the hallways of the headquarters. So we iterated again and we said, all right, now we have to look at it differently. Not on the problems, you iterated on the accelerator. You identified this problem of innovation infrastructure. So you're innovating how you innovate. You're not innovating yeah. the, the, the... Yeah. Yeah, so we looked at the, at the process of the accelerator and we said, all right, the program is good. It got us the buy-in, like they really wanted us to, to go forward with it and we even got the small budget to do the next cycle of it. Uh, we didn't get any budget for uh, the project themselves, but uh, we got a budget for the program. Again, very small budget. It was like only for food and places and specific uh, uh, lecturers, for example. Uh, but we thought we have to look at the problems differently, the problems that we choose to get in, to bring in. And uh, we started at looking where is the attention of the Air Force is at the begin with with no relation to us. We looked at the work plans and we like literally took the uh, organizational tree of the Air Force and we tried to take what's the most interesting things where, like right now and we went and we researched for three months only on what problems are interesting enough to try to tackle. And, and with every for, every, for everybody at all levels yeah. of, of the hierarchy. So this is how you kind of broke down that hierarchy and said like, okay, the hierarchy is clearly a problem. How do we solve for the hierarchy? We we find a problem that's appealing to everyone in the hierarchy. So that's a good summary. Again? You you broke down the hierarchy. You recognize that the hierarchy is a problem. So you so your solution to that was find problems and do some really good research to identify problems that would appeal to everybody inside of the hierarchy. Is that kind of the, the way that you went about problem solving there? Yeah, so I wouldn't say everybody. Because you cannot harness everybody. Of, of, of course. So a, a but, majority, 80-20. Yeah, but we look at the begin with of problems that we think we can harness the guy that has the, like, he has the trigger on the budget and the support needed in order to come for, like, let's say in the accelerator, we take the problem from zero to one. So at the end of it, we have an MVP and a good direction for a solution to it. We need his department to take it from one to 10. And if he doesn't want to do it, even if we got a, an order to do it, he probably wouldn't do it. So we need to look at what he, he wants, what he sees as a major problem, and to, to bring him in in the very basic stages. Um, so he will help us to build the right team around it. So when we bring the solution, he would want to hug it and, and take it in. And we invested three months of our time researching different problems and doing those kind of interviews uh, and we got to like 15 or 20 problems that we thought were interesting enough. Uh, one example for it can be that I can talk about could be something from the HR world. Uh, I know HR is not operational, but this one I can talk about <laughs> on, uh, on a non-classified platform. 
we sat with the head of the department in the Air Force that in charge for all the welfare. So what are the different rights that uh, an officer gets in terms of salaries, uh, different benefits? And she said that her biggest problem is that she cannot see a person. Like she has those different like six legacy systems that each one of these systems has a different kind of data. And her HR officer uh, officers needs to take this data and to cross it uh, against different uh, policies that themselves are all spread around in different PDFs and PowerPoints presentations. And to tell those officers uh, what to do, what are the benefits that they deserve or not. And the problem because of that is that you can find two different like uh, people in the Air Force that do a very similar uh, uh, role, for example, but they get different salaries because his HR's officer found out the right definitions as ways in order to give him the most benefits and, and the other guy didn't. Um, so we look at the problem and say, all right, that, that's interesting enough. It looks something that it, that it is solvable and uh, it hasn't changed for a long time. And if we bring the right people into the table, we might develop something interesting. So we went back and we said, all right, how do we know that the Air Force is interested in solving this problem without any relation to us? So we looked at the work plan. We saw that the Air Force decided to double the amount of HR officers in the field bases in order to give better treatment to, to his uh, servants. Uh, so after we saw that, all right, we get, there's a ton of money, a lot of focus in solving that problem. Let's try to tackle it. So we asked her, what kind of uh, points of view do we need in the team in order to solve it? If we find a solution, who should be part of it in the, in the day after uh, if we want to implement it? And she helped us to gather a team on her side. Uh, we brought... Uh, other people from, uh, we, we like sent a, a registration page for all the Air Force, everyone could sign up and we brought two uh, people that represented the customers in the process. So we brought a deputy commander of, a, of an F-35 squadron uh, and another guy that he's a programmer and, and a designer from the, from the headquarters. And they tried to tackle the problem. And uh, a month and a half into the process, in the first month, we tell them uh, that they should not work on any solution. They just need to research the problem and to define the problem again after interviewing all the different possible interest owners in the process, and uh, both internally and externally. So we brought them to companies like Google or, uh, or WalkMe uh, to different security organizations in Israel. And after a month, a month and a half, they realized the problem is not more people. The problem is, is the tools. You can double the amount of people and the better the process of how they communicate with the headquarters, but you're still gonna face the same problem that the data uh, doesn't comply in a way that you can see it for every uh, individual in the Air Force. Um, and they start after we saw like the HR mechanisms of Google where they don't have uh, a team, they don't have like HR officer, they have a, a team that works in Ireland, you can send them emails and all the rest is like uh, a website uh, that shows them everything. So they got back and they said, all right, we have a solution uh, that we think is correct, but this is not what the HR uh, uh, department wanted. 
they thought that at the end of the process, they will bring a different uh, procedure of how the headquarters going to work with the bases when they got so much more people. And uh, we told them, all right, go ahead. You can do whatever you'd like. Take in consideration that at the day afterward, even if the solution is the best solution possible, if the HR officer uh, that in charge of that department doesn't want to take that solution, you have low chances of succeeding. But if you want to go that path, we'll support you. And they decided to go that path anyway. Um, and they took a group of 40 people, 20 from the bases, 20 from the headquarters, uh, that volunteered that they would look at all of their data points to see whether they get all the benefits they deserve or not. And they found out that with two out of 40, then they were random people. Uh, they were, they, they could have gotten like thousands of shekels of every month that they didn't got uh, because they didn't know the right procedures. And, and like they when they needed to do a small course and they will get like a thousand shekels a month and they just didn't know that and nobody told them. Or they could have gotten just the HR officer could, didn't notice. So they, they didn't pay them. That way they prove uh, they proved that their solution, like their MVP, that was their MVP. They, that way they proved that uh, the right uh, uh, technology implemented well would solve that problem. And then afterward, they found um, other cases that, that those systems created problems in, the, in, in all the benefits world in the Air Force. And when we got to the demo day, what happened is that uh, the software development unit in the Air Force they were supposed to develop it if the deputy commander said so. Um, they said they are developing only operational software. So even though they really wanted to develop it because they're suffering from the same problem, uh, their di direction was not to do it. And, and uh, what at the end of that demo day, uh, we ended up with is that they said, we are willing to support it so we are willing to put money on it and to be the first customer of that system, though we would not develop it. So if you wanted to, uh, to go forward, you have to harness the developing unit in the uh, IDF uh, C4I directory. If they would okay, be willing I'm, to- I'm, 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 a little, I'm, a little bit, um, I'm a little bit confused with who the, so, so just to back up. So you get to demo day, they have a solution that works. They've built the model in Excel or something, or they have some other scrappy MVP that they've built up. Maybe you can tell us yeah. a little bit about what the MVP look like. And now they come to demo day and they're getting, they're looking for approval to have the, the Air Force's software unit go build out a full version of this product for yeah. the uh, for the Air Force's HR department to go use. And right. the, the commanding officer of that unit says, we'd love to do it. We think it's a great solution. We think it's a problem, but we're not able to do it because it's not in our purview to go and build out this technology. Exactly. That okay. will happen. And then the deputy commander of the Air Force and the different officers over there said, we are willing to put money on it. So if you find uh, someone in the C4I uh, directorate of the whole IDF, not what only is C, the What is C4I? Uh, communication. Um, I don't remember the terms. Um, Just describe. It doesn't have to be. What does it stand for? Like what? Not not the what is not what the acronym stands for. But at a high level, what is it? What do they do? So they do. There's a unit over there that do software development for all the IDF. So all the different mechanisms that serves all the different uh, forces in the in the IDF. So they're like an internal software development agency. Uh, kind of. So they have like a, an internal software development 
unit that does uh, things that are not operational, like HR software. Uh, uh, so they're 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 an IT department. Yeah. Um, so they said if you if you find a way to harness them, we are willing to uh, pay uh, the money uh, to to like to support with money and to be the first customer, not to pay for all of it. And we went out to them, and luckily it it went along with the, uh, their strategic plan of creating software that. Uh, bringing all of these processes to the uh, to the end servant, um, and they took it, and uh, the Air Force became the first customer. And now that's a software that serves all the IDF, uh, and it's not a very complex technology, but the service that it brought to all the different servants is huge. Because if before, when they wanted to check all of their data and to see uh, whether they deserve a certain benefit, uh, where are they on, on getting uh, the study, or like all of different all of those different things, they needed to call the HR office and to ask those the officer over there to check it out for them, and she needed to look at the systems and and, and uh, parallel all the information. Now they just go on their computing and they do it for themselves, and they can do it for their own people, and and the HR officer is not a bottleneck anymore like it was before. So, so let's unpack that because that was a great story. The first, uh, first, I'll give some lessons that I, that I learned from you telling me the story, and then I'd love for you to tell us lessons you've learned from that. The the thing that strikes me the most from from that story and that your whole your whole um, as as we as we like to say that whole spiel, um, is is that while it's really not not necessarily easy, but it's straightforward to take something from zero to one in terms of we have innovation processes that make it pretty simple. The accelerator process is something that's been pretty well documented to bring something from zero to one um, of what needs to happen. But actually within a bureaucracy and something that we can learn from defense innovation is when you have a big bureaucratic organization with lots of hierarchy, you also need to take kind of a human factors um, leadership and communications approach to make sure that you also have a mechanism to get it from one to 10. So it's not just zero to one that's important. You really do need to think about, okay, you get it from zero to one. You show it works. We have a party. The accelerator is great. Your investors love your product at demo day. Your board loves the new innovation you made. Your commanding officer loves this loves this new tech. But what? how are you actually going to go about getting it from one to 10? And there's Within that, there's not only an innovation process um, component that you need to focus on for the one to 10 piece, but there's also a pretty significant human factors um, component where you have to actually incentivize top level leadership, uh, middle management, and then also the folks who are actually using the tools to come together to make sure that that this piece of, of this new tool that you're going to build using innovation will actually be innovative in the sense that it's something that solves a problem because people are going to use it. Because you can have the most fancy fancy schmancy piece of, of, of equipment, but if no one knows how to use it, it's worthless. It's not actually innovative. Um, so, so that was the big lesson I took away from that. What are some of the lessons that you've learned uh, through this story and other stories like it uh, with, with taking a product from zero to one through the accelerator? And then also with some of, you, you mentioned some of these lessons as you were talking with iterations of the accelerator, how to bring a product from one to 10 using innovation resources and whatnot. So I'd say the first thing about it in terms of getting it from uh, from one to 10, 
Because I think zero to one these days is pretty easy, especially in such a big systems because it it's, doesn't happen there every day. So if you bring smart people to a table that usually do, do not meet and you bring them through the right process and there are so many of these processes, you're probably going to get good ideas. Um, and if you take someone that has uh, done it a few times, you can get them through a process that they will mature an MVP. I think that's not the real problem in innovating with, within a big Uh, company and the problem is from one to ten and on the one to ten the first thing that, that I see is the most important is to try to ride on trains that are already going so if you look at that if we look at what happened in that uh, specific project with the HR world what actually happened is that we ran out on the train that was already going of that software development unit for the IDF that wanted to develop software that will take these services and And bring them to the soldier on the on the end and uh, in the bases on the end of the chain and they already had budget for it and developers for it and when we brought them that innovative solution with the MVP and the customer of as, as the Air Force and some money they were very incentivized to take it uh, otherwise and this was this is what we were afraid of when we had the dilemma whether to go for a process and not to For, uh, for what we thought was the really best solution for the problem is that if they would not uh, comply with us, if we wouldn't get on their train, the project might be dead because the Air Force did not agree to, uh, to develop it. It only agreed to, to bring some money. Um, so this would be one thing. And actually at the second at the third cycle of the program, we went for some more operational challenges. And uh, one of them, I cannot go into details, but it received uh, an innovation reward of the Chief of Staff of the Air Force, of the IDF, Aviv Kohavi. It was a really great project. And what happened over there is pretty similar. We, brought, we wanted to shorten the amount of time uh, significantly uh, when uh, ground force troops asked for aerial fire support uh, from a certain amount of time to like 8, 10x shorter. Uh, so it will be more relevant. And uh, we brought into the team people mostly from the Air Force, but also from the ground, ground force. And they developed a solution both technologically and uh, like in their uh, uh, like combat method of how do they do these things. Uh, so like until that point. And at the end of the accelerator, we had the solution. We have the small MVP that worked. But what really made, what really made it go into the, the processes of the uh, buildup of the IDF is that the chief of staff started a, a multi-dimensional unit that brings people from all over. And they got a budget for doing buildup to build different technologies that serves Uh, these new uh, combat methodologies and uh, we brought them a fixed solution with a team and <laughs> with a deep research process and an MVP so they really hogged it but if they weren't uh, there and they didn't have the money at that stage I'm really not sure it's what it, it would have got through um, and recognizing these players ahead is, is a key thing in order to Uh, make these accelerated programs effective uh, within uh, within these organizations so this is one thing second thing uh, I see here is to keep their freedom because one of the advantages 
of these programs is that they um, go underneath the politics. So when you have a large scale company, you have politics. It's really hard to, to get rid of it. And, uh, and especially in, in hierarchical organization like the military. And that politics is dooming. People starting and they get like hit from all different places of why did you talk to him and how did you do that? And they just, all right, I won't do anything at all. And they stop. And it's, it's brings the organization many times to stagnation. And within those kind of programs, you bring people from, uh, from work levels all across the, the process you're trying to tackle and they don't have that much of politics because they, they are work levels over there. They just want to do the work and succeed and they know the problem best. So if you give them the freedom in order to develop the solution that, that they believe is true, many times it's, it's much better than what uh, originally uh, the organization would try to do in order to tackle those problems. And we saw it with the HR, for example, because what happened is that the HR department really wanted us to go for a process. Like we, we literally had a huge discussion about it because they did not believe that the going for, uh, uh, for software is the right solution. But because we gave the team uh, the freedom uh, to go wherever they want, they took a different direction and, uh, and at the end it was really good. Yeah, and understanding incentives um, and, and politics is it seems like it's essential, especially when you're in a big hierarchical organization and not, and not having resentment for that. Uh, because resentment will just be toxic and not allow you to do any of the work you need to do to innovate, but embracing it and understanding it, empathizing with it, and then figuring out how to work with it um, and educate around it seems really critical. Yeah. And also using it. So another part of it, of dealing with those uh, uh, politics, uh, and, and it's also not, not only politics on the cynical side, it's just practical. Mm -hmm. uh, Human nature. Of starting each one of these teams we do a, a, a mapping of the different interest owners in the process. So it can be units that you have to go through in order to get it implemented, implemented into, if you find a good solution on one side. And on the other side is like uh, units or people that would, would be interesting, interested in, in that solution in case you are uh, succeeding and you find something interesting over there. You don't necessarily need them, but if they're in, they can really support you. And they can take it to, to a different, uh, to, you bring it to a different approach that will be much better. And we make sure that we have most of these points of view within the team. So bring people from all of these different places. They want to be in the accelerator. Uh, they want to be part of the program because uh, they see that it might be their own problem and they want to tackle it. Uh, it might be because they have passion for it, because they're entrepreneurs in their like uh, character. Entrepreneurs is, is the character, um, or they just want to go for it, fun and, and interesting, and developing experience. Never mind. The thing is that they go through the process together from the very, very uh, uh, starting of the of the program. So when we get to the end result, nobody is surprised because they went through the process of finding and developing that solution together. And then from, when you get to the stage of bringing it from one to 10, you got someone in work level in each one of these places that is incentivized for it to work. Because this is like his solution. It's like his process. He wanted to be successful because he worked on it personally. Um, 
And, and we saw that the, the team that did succeed, for example, in, in the second cycle of the accelerator with the, when I, what I told you about with the HR uh, project, for example, we started with 10 teams, uh, six got approval and budget at the end of the demo day. And, and three of them actually went through and succeeded through the whole process, uh, which is, uh, I see it as very high percentage. And, and I think one of the things that, that you could see in all of them is that we had people in work level in all of the different uh, places that we needed in order for it to work. Uh, but when you're saying work level, you mean the person on the front lines is actually doing the individual work on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, so it can be the, the uh, person on the front line. It can be low-level manager, uh, like a team lead, for example. Uh, but we try to bring people that are as close as possible for the problem, while at the same time that they have enough of uh, like organizational capital so they can, uh, they can influence uh, their own unit. So like if they believe this is true, they can push towards it and, uh, and work around it when, when uh, we reached over there. And uh, because we don't have so much more time, I think we'll go through different mechanisms that, we had that can be relevant. Um, so another conclusion that, that I thought about um, when, when I got to the planning directorate, advantage what is my biggest disadvantage when i was there well ori can i can i just uh, back up for one second so you moved just in your personal capacity you moved or not your professional capacity you moved from the deputy head of innovation for the israeli air force to the idf planning directorate can you just give us a minute or two of background on how that happened and what the planning directorate is how is that different from where you were earlier all right so actually it's pretty similar uh, the innovation department in the Air Force at the beginning was in the planning directorate of the Air Force, like internally only for the Air Force. Um, and what happened is that when I was about to finish my military service and I was, um, I was about to go out and, and, and finish with my military service, uh, the chief of staff, uh, Aviv Kohavi, he is the current chief of staff, um, he was about to get into, into the role and I helped build a learning day about civic organization for, uh, for like, he was doing like a, a learning week before he started the role. And at the end of that week, I was uh, offered, at the end of the day, no weeks, uh, the day that I helped to develop, uh, I was offered to uh, speak for 20 minutes and to tell him about the community I've built. So, uh, beside building the, the accelerator program and all these kind of more practical mechanisms, we developed a community uh, within the Air Force that became a community for all the IDF uh, eventually of entrepreneurs and enablers. Uh, what we thought about is that one of the biggest engines for innovation in, in, in the startup nation like in Israel is that all of these uh, startup communities that we have uh, all across Israel uh, that really support uh, the entrepreneurship activity around. It helps you to find co-founders, to find money, uh, to find insights. So in fact, the IAF is huge. It's like a city. So let's build our own community 
for entrepreneurs that they will help each other to, to go through the different obstacles of being an entrepreneur uh, within the military. So we started it and eventually it became a community with thousands of people uh, from all across uh, the security mechanism in Israel, from the police to uh, the uh, fire department, uh, from mandatory service soldiers to uh, major generals. And uh, I was offered to, to uh, tell them about the community and I pitched it and I pitched my personal story. And at the end of it, uh, he asked me when I'm about to get released and I told him the date. So he said, all right, so don't get released. And I found myself going to another journey in the IDF, uh, uh, starting uh, that uh, branch with great people. Um, and that branch is in the planning directorate of the IDF, which is a directorate of very uh, small amount of people. It's a few hundreds uh, of people uh, that in charge of all the resources and strategic planning of the IDF, everything. Like uh, the planning director decides what unit's gonna open and what unit is gonna be closed. Uh, what base are we gonna open? What base are we gonna close? Uh, in which direction do we need to develop our uh, uh, ammunition and weapons, um, and so and so. And he started a new division over there uh, that's supposed to do build up for multidimensional projects um, that will serve all the IDF. Um, and one, one uh, part of that division was the innovation branch. So I saw this kind of scaling what we did in the Air Force through the whole military. Uh, right now in the IDF, you have an innovation uh, department in almost every kind of the in, in every force, like in uh, even in the uh, personnel directorate, in the C4I, and everywhere. In the ground troops, you have more than one. Um, so we started a branch that, that we saw everyone. And when I got there, I thought to myself, you know a lot for uh, what you've been doing so far, but you know nothing for the role that you're having right now. Because right now you're dealing with the whole IDF, um, all different levels. And at the same time, you're like kind of flying above in the general staff, uh, but you don't have like a specific organization beneath you because you're not part of each one of any of these forces. So I got to the conclusion that my uh, biggest advantage is that I can ask anything, I can ask any question, anyone on the one side. And my disadvantage is that I'm small and I can deal with very small amount of things at a time. So I try to think about what is the one big domino that if I'll take him off, I'll take off thousands of other dominoes at the same time. So, um, because, because I thought I can deal with a very small amount of people, but I can deal with anything I want. I can go all over the place uh, and, and find those things. And what I thought is interesting about over there is uh, that there are some things that are uh, repeating themselves all over the, uh, the military. So it's, some, it's things that like, you don't, you don't only deal with them in the Air Force, you deal with them everywhere. And, and if you solve them from the uh, standpoint of, of the planning directorate, and it's hard to solve it from there, but it's, it's like almost impossible to solve it from, from other places, you can literally open the gates and, and, and lower these invisible walls for everyone. 
So like I tried to first locate those different areas and I found like eight areas that uh, I think relevant for most of the uh, entrepreneurs across the military. And, and then to find the right tool in order to get it from a problem into a solution. So like one uh, example of it would be uh, something I saw repeat itself in the security clearance um, uh, function and in the spokesperson and in the, uh, also in uh, the legal one is that the advisor is also the regulator all over. So when the advisor and the regulator are the same person, the advisor is not an advisor. He's only a regulator. Because if he, if he can decide, uh, he's not advising. It's like having your lawyer be your judge. Exactly. Yeah. And, and when that happens across the different functions in, in the whole military, some people just don't ask and then you have problems or they just don't do because they think, like for example, uh, if you have a legal officer that is uh, very conservative and uh, it doesn't want to like innovate and open up and find new approaches of how can he approve what you would like to do. You're just stuck because you have to get his approval because as we said, it's, you have to harness him in order to go forward. Otherwise he, he's the regular, he can stop you. Um, so for example, we thought about creating a, uh, so that happens also in, in like in security clearance, and this is one of the biggest problems of like saving your information in, in, in the IDF. Uh, so many things are stopping at that level because you don't get the approvals over there. Even though if you actually do the work, you can find a security clearance officer that will find you a solution that will be good enough and will be enable you to go through. Um, so we thought about starting uh, like an anonymous uh, consulting uh, phone where you can call uh, a security officer uh, and consult with them about what to do. It's like kind of getting a second opinion for a doctor and it's anonymous, so you can bring up whatever you want on that phone. Uh, so you have more tools in order to deal with your security officer if he's does not complying or is complying. Because if you get the, that opinion for both of them, you might be, okay, he's right, he's correct. So, so let's leave, it, leave that aside or change my approach. So, so what I'm hearing, you moved from the specifics in the, in the IAF where you really built up your knowledge of how do we take a problem from zero to one and then from one to 10? And how do we build an ecosystem within a hierarchy and within a bureaucracy to do just that? Uh, and, and now you're moving on because you had this, this very unique opportunity to go work, operate in the heart of where the decision-making happens for new infrastructure to be brought to the full force of the Israeli military uh, within the, the planning directorate. And you had the opportunity to bring your innovation approach and the innovation infrastructure and innovation resources that you familiarized yourself with in the Air Force to this unit to this branch of the Israeli military. Um, and you're there and there's all these different problems that are coming your way. And outside of your professional capacity, um, in your own brain, you're thinking through, okay, I have a, a limited amount of time here. I have a very unique opportunity. How can I make the biggest impact? And so you've told us a little bit about how you went about framing that problem of how do I have the biggest impact? Um, which is awesome. So you you identify what are the, the key areas where if I knock down this domino, flick, flick, I'll knock down a thousand other dominoes. And you go about 
identifying those different problems areas and you start coming up with some different solutions. So what specifically, what pieces of the Israeli Air Force's accelerator that you built and the, and the innovation communities that you built so effectively for the Air Force, how did you then parse that and take pieces of that over to the planning directorate? What, what did that look like? What did it look like to set up the innovation branch? Or I'll ask you the same problem I asked you for the Air Force, uh, the same question I asked you for, for, for your work in the Air Force. What was the problem facing the planning directorate that that the that the head of the IDF was trying to solve by offering you a position to build their innovation department? What what was that problem? What what was holding the planning directorate back? So I think the planning directorate is is not an um, is not an entity by itself. Like it represents the whole IDF. So the agenda of the planning director, it should be IDF, all the different voices. And so the problem that we, we spoke about earlier in the Air Force is the same problem we want to tackle uh, across the military. Um, and it goes in different levels and it comes out in different ways in each one of the forces. Uh, but uh, but it's, it's kind of the same problem. And in each one of these forces, because you get different tool sets. So, for example, some forces has their own innovation department, some doesn't. Um, some places are more innovative, like the intelligence corps. So the processes are much quicker. Those barriers are much lower. They have much more patience and, and, and ability to contain uh, uh, people with crazy ideas. To other places where I don't mention, because I don't want to speak bad about anyone, but <laughs> uh, that are less open to it. Uh, so you have to find like uh, what's right for the IDF for you to try to tackle. Uh, so like one did one thing I did over there is that uh, when I got to the, we spoke about it a little bit when we met in Israel, but how did I got to do this job in the military? Uh, so. Uh, I can't hear you. Uh, it's a great story, and I want to ask you about it. Um, I mean, now it could be a good time to talk about it, but I think maybe at the end of the conversation we can come back to the full story if you have uh, if you have the time. Yeah. So, so I'll go over it uh, like a short version of it uh, because it's it's it supports the point that I was what I was doing over there. So when I was uh, trying to be drafted uh, into the uh, IF Innovation Department, back then it was the only innovation department in the IDF. And I had previous background in entrepreneurship when I was younger, both technologically and social entrepreneurship. Corey, uh, can, can I just clarify something? So when you say it was the only innovation department in the IDF, I think some people might hear that and think like, what do you mean? The IDF has been innovative for its whole existence. Could you just clarify what you mean when you say it was the only innovation department in the IDF? Yeah. So, uh, of course, when someone asks me, what do you do? You're in charge for innovation in the IDF? I say, no, the IDF was innovative way earlier than uh, when uh, they decided to start an innovation branch or the Air Force decided to open its innovation department, its innovation department. But because of the pace in which technology is accelerating these days and the market is changing and the enemy is getting those new abilities, we have to innovate much quicker and to do it uh, much more effective and to bring more people into these processes. And uh, in order to solve that, 
the idea started to open these kinds of department that this is their day-to-day to find out how can we increase uh, that amount of innovation activity across uh, the military. So uh, back then, the only organization within like the IDF that did it, that has someone that uh, is attained to do that was the Air Force. And um, because in the, in the IDF you have mandatory service, uh, they decide where you go. You don't choose your role. You can ask for certain roles, but they don't, you don't choose. And uh, the IDF chose me to be a fighter in the Navy boat. And I really wanted to go to the uh, Air Force Innovation Department. And I realized that uh, I'll have to be creative and innovative to try to uh, get them to agree with that because it goes against all of their procedures. So what happened is that uh, I heard about the Innovation Department because someone spoke at the conference and I saw his name and I told myself, right, not that many people in my age are walking around these conferences. Uh, I might be relevant to them. So I found him on Facebook. I started to talk with him. Uh, long story short, he didn't help, but I reached out to the commander of the department. Someone made an intro for us and we spoke and he said he would love to get me in, but uh, it's impossible because it's against the uh, policy uh, of the uh, IDF uh, drafting policy. And I pushed him a little bit more and he agreed to give me a letter that he wants to get me to the unit, but he uh, put up two terms. He said, one, you don't uh, lower your health profile. Each and every soldier gets a health profile and uh, according to, to that uh, profile, they decide where to, where to uh, uh, put you, uh, to, to give you a certain role. And uh, if you want to get out of a fighter role, for example, you can lower your profile and say you have some more health issues and then they will change your role. So he said, you don't do it. If you do it, I won't take you. And the second thing, you convince the HR unit that are in charge of it for the whole IDF. If you convince them to, uh, to agree and you get here like in three months or now, I'll be very impressed. So I said, all right, challenge accepted. I'm going to work at it to the last day. And if it wouldn't work, I'll go to the Navy and we'll see where it goes. And uh, after a while, I thought, all right, I cannot send them like a CV and hope they will uh, say, oh, wow, he fits to the innovation department. Let's support him. Because uh, I know it's against the policy and it's probably going to end up at a soldier's hand that cannot do anything with it. So I try to figure out how does it work and who is the person that can approve that request. And I found a soldier that agreed to support me. Uh, he was in charge of changing the roles for girls, girls that asked to change the roles. So he told me how it works. He said he never saw an approved like that, uh, and a request like that being approved, but he liked the story. And, uh, you know, Peter is, is, is always talking about uh, if you want to, if you go and ask for money, you, we might get some advice. And if you go and ask for advice, you might get some money. So this same thing when you try to ask them for help. Yeah, always, always ask for, uh, always ask for, for, for help instead of asking them for to help you do something, and um, always ask for advice rather than asking them to help you do something. Is the exactly is the core. So I called the soldier and, and I asked him if he can help me to figure out 
if if it was possible, who could approve it? What was approved in the past? And he decided to hop. He took it to his commander. They took it to his commander. They told me to bring recommendation letters or bought them and they look at it and they said no, because it goes against the policies, like the two tails of the policy. So I thought, all right, he looked at it. He doesn't owe me anything. Let's push, push some, some more. And uh, I took another week. I brought some more letters. And then I sent them all from the office of the head of the uh, directorate of the personnel, like the HR and the IDF. He did, like, the head of the HR in, in IDF did not read my uh, letters. But apparently there's a procedure in his office that if you send something from them, they, ask, they send it to the, their unit for uh, a request for information. So they treat it much more seriously because they don't know if you read it or not. Uh, so it got to them and they decided to uh, bring it up to the decision of the commander of the unit. And a week afterward, I got a letter to my house that said uh, that no, they did not agree, even though I did all of that work. So I thought to myself, they didn't owe me anything. They could have uh, stopped it at the uh, lower level commander because it was in his uh, uh, area of responsibility. So I need to push push some more, and I try to find someone at the office of the commander of the Air Force, and I didn't find anyone. But luckily, uh, I got an email about a conference for remembrance for Elon Ramon, the Israeli astronaut, and one of the speakers in the conference was the commander of the Air Force. So I took the ticket, I went in. Uh, there was a lot of security outside, but not that much inside, so I could just approach him. And he got in the middle of the day. Um, my head was spinning around. What am I going to say? So I went to the side. I thought about my, like, pitch. And at that time, he, he already got into the uh, hallway. He sat down, uh, waiting for them to call him uh, to call him to the stage to speak. I was like 10 stair stairs staircase away from, from him and they call him to the stage. And I'm like, fuck. <laughs> so I went out, I sat, uh, I sat in, the, in the chair, I was listening to his talk and when he finished it, I just went outside, I followed him and he did this, a, small, a small talk with someone and at the end of it, I just stopped him and I told him, hi. Uh, my name is Ori. I had to introduce myself. I'm getting drafted in a month from now, and I, I'm thrilled to go into the Air Force. And then he asked, what, everyone in the Air Force? I was like, no, the innovation department. And we started to talk. And at the end of the conversation, he asked me if someone is taking care of it. And I said, no. Uh, yeah, I said, yeah, they said no. They did not agree. The commander of the unit said, all right, so I can intervene. I'm sorry. So I brought another uh, notebook with all of these letters. And I told him, I'd be really glad if you look at it. And I gave him the notebook and he took it away, surprised and gone. I went out of the conference and I thought to myself, this is one of the best results I could ever ask for out of that conference. A week passed by. His office talked with the innovation department about me. And uh, at the day I was supposed to get drafted to... The Navy, I got a call from his office telling me uh, they didn't want to help, but unfortunately they can't because it's too late and it's against the policy of the IDF.
So went to the drafting date. I got into the uh, like drafting chain, got uniforms, everything uh, along the process. I got to a sorting officer and I he asked me if everything's okay. I said, no, I want to go to the Air Force. So he said, I'll check it, I'll check. And then he said, no, you're going to the Navy. And I said, no, 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 I'm going to the Air Force. And he kept going through the chain. Well, Ori, well, I think day, one, one important piece here that I, that I think you might have glossed over I think you, I remember that there was a problem because you were going to the, you were supposed to go to the Navy, but you were trying to go to the Air Force. And that was a big sticking point was crossing between branches. Is that, is that correct? Right. So I wanted to go to the Air Force Innovation Department, which is a very specific place in the Air Force. And we spoke about procedures in the past because there was only one of these. Uh, they didn't have all the HR procedures set so they could uh, ask them to get me or anyone else. Um, so because of that, even though they needed a soldier with a professional background, they couldn't get them because they did not um, went through the process of defining a military profession and getting all of the uh, approval for receiving unique soldiers. Uh, so when I asked that, they said no, because they don't have all the approvals. So uh, I went to the sorting officer and I told him I'm going to the Air Force. And he said, no. And I said, I'm not going away. I'm going only to the Air Force. And he said, all right, keep going. So I kept with the chain. I got all the uniforms. I became a soldier officially. I took a picture. And then I saw an auto sorting officer. And he yelled at me. And he offered me to be a driver in the Air Force. And I said, no. <laughs> and at the end of the day, I found myself in military confinement. Uh, went to jail on my first day in the military. Because I, I didn't want to go to the Navy, I only wanted to go to the Air Force. So a few days passed by. I won't go into details about that. I went out and I told them, all right, I figured that they won't let me go to the innovation department because it's against their procedures and they don't want to do something that uh, will make me win. Uh, and like beat the process because they're afraid that more people will do it in, in the future, but they will give me a hard compromise. So I asked to be a technician in the Air Force, which is something which is something that many people doesn't want to do. So they thought about it. They gave me a week and a half of uh, like uh, vacation, uh, and I got back and they told me you're not going to the Air Force. You can go anywhere you you'd like, any fighter job you want, but you're not going to the Air Force. I told them, no, I have to go to the Air Force. My dad was a technician officer, uh, a technical officer. Uh, I want to go in his footsteps. I know you won't give me the innovation department, so at least give me that. And they said, we'll think about it again. I went out for a weekend, and when I got back, I got to jail again because they did not agree. <laughs> so the second time I went out of jail, we had this discussion with the head of the all the categorization in the military. He came to give me a military uh, judgment. And I was like going back and forth out of his office. And at the end of it, he asked me like, okay, I can put you, I can put you at the commission in the Air Force. Though uh, we're going through a drafting season. And if I give you the role of an Air Force technician, everyone would want to do it as well. 
So if you stay 40 more days in prison, like in, in military jail, at the end of it, I will set you free and I'll put you an Air Force technician. And I said, okay. And I went out and I knew it's something between like an hour to two days till they got back and bring me out because it's against his interest. And it took 10 minutes. Another soldier officer came and he told me what you did is wrong and you're not allowed to do it. But this time the, the system is going to be bigger than you and we'll put you a uh, technician in the Air Force. And it went to the the Air Force, I got inside, but as a technician, which is not my goal. My goal is to go to the Air Force Innovation Department. And when I got there, I realized... How many months, how many months had it been since you, uh, since you had that conversation with the Innovation Department that they said, if you can do it in three months, I'll be, I'll be impressed? Two months, maybe two and a half. So I got into the Air Force um, on my path of being a technician in the Air Force where I want to go to the innovation department. And I realized when I got there, a few things. One, it's a new game. It's not IDF anymore. It's the Air Force. New people, everything is refreshed. Two, I realized later on that that HR office talked with the HR officer in the Air Force that like she's the only one that has the ability to approve moving me from uh, being a technician to the innovation department. And she agreed to not do it when I would ask for it. So this was like their uh, terms for sending me to be a technician. They talked to her during the week and a half. So I realized that afterward. And, And bottom line, I figured that I have to find a way for them to decide that's the right thing to do and not, uh, for me to push them and to go go head to head with the system again. So I try to figure what can make you not a technician, like, like health issues, um, all those different professional things that they can uh, buy the idea of procedures. Um, will have will make you problematic with being a technician. So they would want to move you. And on the other side, I thought let's make uh, an initiative within the uh, technical school so they will see what I can do and they will uh, try to support me while I tell my stories. Long story short, I was spent there like three or four months uh, that at the end of it, I developed a plan of how can you make this a place that more people would like to come to, both of which people would you bring to be a technician, second, how could you change all the uh, training a structure in a way that will make them feel uh, much better with their with their role and, and um, much more valuable. And then another thing when they get to the squadrons, and I got the uh, option to to show it to the commander of the technical school. He liked it and he decided he want to help me as well. And uh, long story short, six months afterward, I got to the innovation department and I realized that if I want to solve that HR boring processes. I'm risking the future of the innovation departments all across the IDF. Because if I need to build on that, every one of these soldiers will go through the process I went through and, and that the commander of these departments will have the patience and the risk tolerance um, to go with these processes. 
it might die in the future. So a week before I left the planning directorate, I finished with defining a military profession for it. So now all of these departments can actually locate uh, and bring those special people uh, to these units. And this is like an actual military profession called innovation leader. Um, and, and I told that story as an example for uh, a one domino that if you take him off, it solves a lot of thousands of dominoes that you won't even notice because uh, when these people get to these departments, they are the closest to the problems and they see what all of these forces needing. And I could solve it from the planning directorate, which, and, and when I tried to do it from the Air Force, it took me four years. Uh, it was really hard. And when I got to the planning directorate, it went much smoother. So that's an awesome story. What is an innovation profession? What does that mean? What does that look like? So in the military, or in the way we try to define it, it's, it's, um, it's challenging because I, I need people that have, uh, like entrepreneurship is a character. It's not a, prof like you can say it's a profession, but I believe it's more of a character than a profession. And each one of the entrepreneurs take it for his own path. So like you could have background in, in marketing or you can be a social entrepreneur. And it's very different from a tech entrepreneur. Uh, both of them can be entrepreneurs. So we try to find a formula, formula that we can get the CV of these people and interview them. Uh, so uh, we'll have in each of every of these departments a group of people that have all of these skills. So my point of view when I tried to define it was I need to have uh, in each one of these departments only entrepreneurs that so they can actually walk through with, with people in the military that goes for these processes. So they have their own personal stories of, of creating things. And at the same time, I need to have all the different kinds of abilities that will enable them to take something from zero to one internally. So I need to have, I need to have something that knows design and someone that knows different kinds of text and uh, someone that have a lot of connections and knows how to do marketing and community management. So um, we try to bring this kind of a flexible category uh, process that would enable us to find them and bring which, which, which each one of them we like and we think will fit the culture of, of the, those departments at the time. So does that mean that every ground unit now has someone who specializes in innovation and innovation management on their, on their, in, in their unit? So not every ground unit, uh, almost every big force, like the Air Force, the Navy, the, each one of them has uh, at least one. Only the Navy just started recently, so they don't have an official place, but they, they got one of these soldiers, so they put him some, somewhere else. Um, and it's pretty recent, so they, they didn't finish the process uh, so far, but in the future, it's about to go to like 60 people. Uh, that will be spread around all the idea. Right now, we have a few dozen, I think it's like 15 or 20, uh, but it's supposed to grow. Cool. So this has been a wonderful conversation. I imagine you have to start hopping off. Uh, I know it's getting late over in Israel. Um, I think we should, we'll probably want to do a part two to follow up on where you're taking your career next because you've recently gotten out of the military. Is that correct? Um, correct. And now you're working on some very exciting projects, which I'm not sure if you if you want to get into, but I'll give you a, an opportunity 
um, at the end, or you know, even right now, if you want to tell folks about what you're what you're working on and what you're excited about right now. So we did this a little bit at the beginning, but but maybe this is a good time to ask Ori, where can people find you, and and uh, how can people interact with you uh, more deeply, more intimately? So um, as as an approach, like I like to uh, invest in. Uh, conversation with interesting people that see things from perspective that I don't have. So you can reach me out on Facebook or through you, through email. Uh, and, and I'd love to talk, even if you don't have a specific thing, if you think we can have an interesting conversation together about these subjects that can be fruitful for both of us, I'm very open to that. Um, in terms of the future, as it seems for the next few years, uh, I'm about to do something uh, in the same field. Uh, I don't want to elaborate it, about it right now, but uh, uh, these days I'm doing some consulting and I'm helping big uh, companies uh, to design their uh, internal innovation infrastructure. I do lectures about innovation as an order, question mark, because you cannot do it as an order, actually. Um, so uh, you can invite me for these as well. Um, and uh, yeah. Awesome, and we'll and we'll link to two different links for Facebook, email, etc. In the show notes, um, anything else that you want to hit on before we pop off? This has been a wonderful conversation, and just the right exact type of tactical conversation I was hoping to have with you about lessons that you've learned through your extensive experience with innovation resources, innovation infrastructure, and and breaking through those big bureaucratic and hierarchical hurdles that you have faced throughout your career. So thank you so much for that. Are there any other lessons, takeaways, et cetera, you'd like to share before we, before we wrap up? So I think we'll save it other lessons for part two, but awesome. uh, what I do would like to say is thank you for each one of the listener listeners that stay with us so far. It's been a long conversation and, and these days time is the most, uh, meaningful resources that we have and I'm very flattered and, and happy that you decided to invest the time listening to us uh, speaking about this subject. And if there's anything you can think can be interesting for me or I can be interesting for you, I really urge you to, uh, to approach and I'd love to talk. Awesome. Well, Ori, thank you so much and thank you for your service to the state of Israel as well. And we will be sure to follow up with you a little bit later once you've had some of the next chapter of your career unfold and the next exciting milestones and and tales of your of your adventures are are primed and ready to to share with the audience so thank you again have a wonderful wonderful week ahead and stay safe i know that it's a pretty crazy time over in israel and we're all we're all following watching along yeah yeah <laughs> hopefully it's gonna end soon but uh, i trust the idf and we do great work and then uh, we spoke about innovation before, and that budget is usually never the problem, even though sometimes it is the problem, but it's usually solvable. These days, we have the Iron Dome that intercepts almost 90% of these more than 3,000 rockets that have been sent to us by uh, Hamas terror group into Israeli civilian areas, and it saves the lives of hundreds of people. And if you look at the process of how it was developed, it was a beautiful uh, internal innovation process within 
uh, the security mechanisms. And it almost fell on budget, but they found a budget again because it's not the resources, it's resourcefulness. And they found a way to, to bring it up. And, and these days, the state of Israel is thanking them so much for keeping keep pushing forward. Like I saw in, in one of the groups, WhatsApp groups we had, they, they shared an article from that time where they said that uh, the investment in the Iron Dome project is going to fail uh, and it's impossible and it's not going to work. And when we look at this these days, this is one of the, gift, the best gifts that we could have gotten from the security mechanism in the last few years. Aruch Hashem, as our people say. Um, anyway, Ori, thank you so much. We will link to some, some videos and whatnot on the Iron Dome. Thank you again, and have a wonderful day, everybody. Thank you all for listening. This was another episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Next Frontier Podcast. If you like this content, please head over to nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. It's nextfrontier.org forward slash subscribe. We have out of this world content coming your way over the next few months. Hope that you enjoy and stay tuned.